So yeah, I was telling uh, Kelsey before about, well, she asked me why I'm dressed so nicely today, which I guess is referring to my sweater and not to my sweatpants. Which, um, and I was saying that I just came from a meeting with some administrators in Andover from the different schools, so from high school, middle school, and some that take care of, you know, the curriculum from ninth to twelfth, and some principals, and some, you know, oh, even elementary school, right? So it's the whole gamut, right? Teachers and administrators. And, um, and I was asked to come in to lead some mindfulness training to, um, you know, the email said, lead some mindfulness activities for the teachers. And I came in and I just asked them directly what they would like me to talk about, what, what this is exactly for. And the two kind of facilitators of the round said that the main themes are mindfulness, but also how to balance work life with personal life. And I thought, OK. But as soon as I heard the word mindfulness, kind of an alarm bell went off in my mind. And I don't know why, but I almost had the feeling that a lot of people talk about mindfulness. Like, I know that I'm picking up my phone. I know that I'm putting down my phone. I know that I'm picking up my water bottle. I know I'm drinking it. I feel the water going down my throat. So mindfulness in terms of like um, being present with what you're doing is how a lot of teachers talk about mindfulness, especially. But there's a real incompleteness to that understanding. And I said to them, you know, when a burglar sneaks into a house, they probably do that very mindfully, right? They really slowly open the window. They really slowly go in. They know that they're stealing your wallet. They're aware that you're asleep. They're very quiet. They sneak back out. So mindfulness by itself is really not something that we should be patting ourselves on the back for. Because mindfulness can also be very unhealthy and unwholesome. So mindfulness also needs to have wisdom combined with it. I said to them, mindfulness is just like shining a flashlight, right? So it's just sending your attention somewhere, putting your attention on something. Yeah, you can be mindful of everything. But what is the intention of that? And while a lot of them were talking, I said, well, you know, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of mindfulness about what you guys are consuming in your brains. So in terms of a lot of people, right, are listening to the news through Facebook, um, filling themselves up with a lot of negativity, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, even though their actual life, nothing much is happening. Um, we heard a comedian yesterday, and he came out and, you know, he said, you know, hi, I'm a comedian, and I'm a Muslim. And he said, and a lot of people, they say that the Muslim ban was really the worst day for Muslims in this country. But actually, on that day, I got cast for a Taco Bell commercial, and it was great. And he said, so yeah, I had relatives that were stuck in their country and things. But actually, personally, like nothing actually happened. My life was the same like it was. 
you know, without that. And it's kind of this interesting place where on one hand we are responsible to really know what's happening in the world and to be on top of things and to really stand up for what needs to be stood up for. And on the other hand, the world is kind of endless. There's always going to be the next thing. There's eight billion people on this planet. So every day someone's going to do something stupid somewhere. You know, and then we need to watch it on loop on the news. And we fill our mind with that. And it adds an extra layer of stress and anxiety. And, and it really exacerbates whatever kind of mood we're in. And on top of that, we start to feel that the whole world is like that, right? We start to even get afraid of the world, which while I was traveling, I've been to, I think, 24 countries or 25 countries, and I've been everywhere, and I see that people are great, that I feel probably the most unfriendly people I've ever met were actually probably here, you know? Even though in America, we're always like afraid of the rest of the world, but when I went everywhere, everyone else was so friendly to me. Maybe it's because I was different, you know, but... But same thing, you know, how we treat people here that are different is usually not very kindly. But when I go to India, everyone's like, oh, hi, how are you? What's your name? Can I take a picture with you? Like, very, very friendly and open. And we need to really be mindful of our relationship with the world. So this idea, for instance, of transforming things that are awful into things that are interesting, right? transforming things that are difficult into things that bring wisdom or are beneficial. When myself and Shannon went to the Boston Planetarium, we you know, were looking at the stars and there was some kind of big pictures outside of galaxies and nebulas and things like this. And I looked into black holes and it was saying that the brightest light in the universe, it's called a quasar. Right? The brightest light in the universe is called a quasar. And a quasar is created from a black hole. And a black hole, as the black hole is sucking, all the kind of gases and particles come. But they're all trying to come in, and the hole is only so big. So they can't all fit in at once. So they have to kind of spin around it, right? Like water, how water down your drain has to, it spins around it in a circle first before it can go down. So everything spins around a black hole, and as it's spinning, it's spinning faster and faster, and it's rubbing all these particles together at high speeds. So it starts emitting light, heat and light. And the light that it creates by rubbing all these particles together so fast creates this thing called a quasar. And I thought about that and thought, you know, how interesting that the greatest and most powerful darkness in the universe creates the greatest and the most powerful light in the universe. And I think if we look at any situation carefully enough, I can actually at the moment speak directly to this. My father has ALS, and um, he's just these past couple days even really started to have trouble breathing and kind of almost like a shift towards hospice-like atmosphere at my house from you know, just being with somebody who is sick to being with someone who's really dying. And within our family I've been seeing that really as, as horrible as this kind of a process is I've really been looking at well what is the light that's being created from the situation and I can see that because the way that 
he is going is so slow and, and it takes so long and it's kind of all these stages. It's really giving us a chance to process it fully, but also to say goodbye to him on deeper and deeper levels. And a lot of conversations that were never had are starting to be had. Uh, a lot of apologies, a lot of I'm sorry's, uh, I love you's. A lot of kind of unfinished business of the heart is coming to the surface and being processed in a way that it would never have been because our family were pretty stubborn with our emotions together. But through this kind of situation, it's forcing us to really clarify things and speak out and, and show our real feelings. And it's beautiful and there's a lot of conversations that have gone on in my family just this past week that I've been waiting for for like 20 years, you know. So to really take these situations that as dark as they are, as hard as they are, um, if you look at that situation, you'll see that there's a lot of light around it and within it. And that's also the same with tragedies, right? The, um, whether it's the storms that are happening, but then all these nations want to donate money, right? Or you hear all these stories about people helping each other. Or you hear about a terrorist attack or a shooting, but then you hear all these stories of the heroes that came and they drove people and they helped people. And wherever the darkness comes, the light also comes, they respond. They work kind of around the same place at the same time because that's the balance. It kind of always stays like that more or less. So I think that expression that you know every cloud has a silver lining, it's actually as kind of cliche as it is, it's very accurate that a lot of life is just about how you look at it. You know, because again, in my situation, I. I've accepted a long time ago that everybody has to die. Everybody is going to die. Death is inevitable. You never want anybody to die, of course. Nobody wants to die, really. And you don't want anyone close to you to die. But if you really accept people are going to die, then you say, okay, well, then the question is, so how should people die? And shortly after I found out about my father's diagnosis, one of my best friends growing up, his father dropped dead on the treadmill. His father was a younger than my father, he was healthy, he was running on the treadmill, he did it every day, he was really taking care of himself, and he had, I don't know, a stroke or a brain aneurysm or a heart attack, something, and just, just died like that. Nobody got to say goodbye, nobody saw it coming, he just went downstairs to the basement to exercise and never came back up. You know, and I thought, wow, that's horrible. And how lucky I am to be able to have this extra time with my dad that I know this is coming to really go through this process. And I just really feel that one of the most important things that I've learned, you know, in my spiritual practice is that we have the ability to shift how we deal with life. That it's really our responsibility and our ability, right? Our ability to respond, responsibility, right? That we can respond however we want, that things are gonna just happen, but how we respond to that actually sometimes creates what that situation was really about. There was the Boston Marathon bombing which spawned the Boston Strong slogan, right? That suddenly our whole community in Boston came together in this really amazing way. And those two things were directly linked, that this really bad thing had to happen for this really beautiful thing to be born. I'm able to teach meditation in schools because there's a bunch of kids that overdose. 
right, or that committed suicide, or that it had to get so bad that people had to say, okay, we need to shift something. And often for ourselves, it's the same thing, that oftentimes our lives, we have to go so far in the wrong direction that we eventually say, I can't do that anymore. And we have to start setting boundaries for ourselves and start saying, I'm, I'm ready to change. I'm ready to transform. And it's really hard to, to bring other people to that place. It's hard to see the people around us that we love suffering um, through their relationship with life in the world and not be able to control their minds to get them to be more patient and relaxed or be more positive or see things. That's really difficult. And I would say it's almost impossible because for a lot of us it's even impossible to really change our own minds. How do you want to change somebody else's mind, right? But by embodying that and by leading by example and by really showing a better way, sometimes people can just start to relate to that. And ultimately, for somebody to change, it really, they have to make that decision themselves. And that's why when the Buddha taught, actually it, as the, you know, whatever the mythology or the history goes of the Buddha, after he reached enlightenment, he was walking away from the Bodhi tree in the park where he gained enlightenment and he came upon a man who was walking by and the man saw him and he said, wow, you, you're glowing. You, you seem really radiant and peaceful and please tell me, you know, who, who are you? What is this? Um, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm fully enlightened. And the man said, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I can really sense that on you. Um, you know, kind of like, congratulations, see you later. And he just kind of walked away. You know, so the very first person to encounter the Buddha after his enlightenment didn't even think to ask for a teaching. It was just like, you're enlightened? Wow, great, see you later. Got to rush to my business meeting. And then by the time the Buddha came upon the next group of people, which were a group of ascetics that he was practicing with earlier, he sat with them, and the first thing he said to them is, there is suffering. That there is suffering inherently bound into this place that we're all in. But there's a way out of that suffering. There's something we can do. And then they were all ears, right? Because he said to them first, like, hey, you're, you're in a place you don't want to be, but there's a way out of it. And that motivated the people to, to say, okay, give us more. Tell us we want to change. We want to fix this. So sometimes we really have to even show people their suffering or explain to them, or sometimes they just have to feel it. A lot of times people have to really... One of the teachers actually at the meeting, she said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working too much and I'm overwhelmed and all of this and I have kids, but if I made rules for myself, I just wouldn't keep them. So what advice can you give to me? Because I'm going to break whatever rule you give me because I just, I don't really hold rules that well. And I just looked at her and said, well, you just haven't suffered enough. So keep going. And then I moved on to the next teacher. Because that's really how it is. Sometimes you really have to get to that place, unfortunately, right? There's some things we can change more easily, but there's some things that we're, it's so ingrained, it's so resistant, that it really, we have to really bring it to a place where there's no other chance, there's no way back, that we have to change, we have to. And a lot of people see this as like a dark night of the soul kind of thing because they're really at a place where they have to 
they're almost at this dead end where they're just faced with all of their, their pain and their grief and their darkness and their insecurities. And, and they have to kind of sit in that and feel that and look at that until finally they understand it to a place that they can transform it and move through it and move past it. And that's a journey that all of us have to make and that all of us will make probably even a few times in this lifetime. Yeah, that, that there's just these times where, you know, they say like a caterpillar or like the birthing process, right? Like the birthing process is painful. You know, babies cry for a reason. Mothers scream for a reason. That it's a painful process, but it gives life to something. It opens something up. Yeah, so to understand that pain is actually, right, the darkness and the light, that pain is directly tied into transformation as well. Yeah, and taking people's pain away from them also disempowers them in a way because you're not giving them actually the impetus they need to transform. So sometimes we're trying to protect everybody around us, but that's actually doing them a disservice because how are they going to change if they don't really have to get in touch with that suffering? And the great Buddhist master Thich Nhat Hanh, he said, I'm pretty sure that there's going to be suffering in heaven as well because how else can we keep growing and learning? We need that. So starting to kind of shift our, our understanding and our perspective of that, it allows us to start letting things go as well. It allows us to start understanding. It's kind of like the yin and the yang, right? Or darkness and light. That, that things have multiple sides and we're going to get a little bit of everything and it's always shifting. So we're going to get some of that and some of this and some really horrible things and some really beautiful things. And it's really up to us to see how do I want to relate to those things that come at me um, in a way that, right, again, coming back to this word responsibility or respondability, right? That what is my ability to respond to this thing that's coming in a way that I can overcome it, in a way that I come out on top, in a way that I can use this thing for growth, that I can use this thing to benefit others. Um, in the Buddhist tradition that I was in, Mahayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, our teacher said, you know, we also here study Chinese medicine. And in Chinese medicine, there is only balance. In Western medicine, we often say there's like good and bad, and if something's bad, we want to cut it out. If there's a symptom, you want to give medication to kill the symptom. So it's very much this kind of divide, conquer, separate, destroy mentality. Whereas in Chinese medicine, they see it as the body's out of balance. So if you have a headache, they're not going to give you headache-numbing medicine. They're going to say, well, that headache seems that it's coming because you have tension in the back of your neck. And it seems that you have tension in the back of your neck because it seems like you're trying to stand up and hold your energy straight, which means you're going through something that's difficult and overwhelming and you're not allowing yourself to be weak and take a rest. You know, and they can kind of trace physical symptoms like that all the way back to an emotional state and an internal belief and something inside that person, for instance, maybe that says, you know, I, I can't ask for help, right? Or that I have to seem competent all the time or else, right, I won't be loved or valued or appreciated. So in Chinese medicine, we also learned that you could trace everything back to its root and see that if you can shift the causes down there, then you could shift the results up here. 
but it also was saying how there's nothing that's good or bad. And in Mahayana Buddhism, it was the same philosophy that's saying everything that comes, you can use it and you can work with it. So it's not like in some religious traditions where there's kind of good things and bad things. In Buddhism, they're saying that you can take the worst possible thing and use that to transform, use that to grow and evolve. You use your pain and your suffering to get stronger, to produce more light, to be more compassionate, to get more understanding for yourself, more understanding and empathy for others. To really understand that this human life that we're in, it's this really limited time and it's here for us to grow. It's here for us to learn and to evolve. And a lot of people are so stuck complaining and being victimized by what happens to them and wanting things to be different that they don't realize that at any given moment you have the power to grow and transform and to change based on how you're relating to your own situation. Yeah, that life, as they say, life happens for you, not to you. Right? If you see that life is something that happens to you, you're a victim. If it's happening for you, then each new situation, you can look at it and say, how can I respond to that, that it can really benefit me, that it can help me evolve, transform, move forward. That whatever life gives you, you take it and you use it for your growth and your process. Everything. Yeah, if something's really good, you could feel thankful for that. You could share it with others. You can use it to reinforce the positive mind. If something really bad happens, you could say, wow, now I know what that feels like. I really wish that doesn't happen on anybody else. I'm going to now share with my friends and family and let them support me and develop a closer bond to them. I'm going to now be able to connect to other people who have been through a similar thing and guide them out of it when it happens in the future. Right? That even like the worst traumas that happen to us can really be used in a way to create more love, more beauty, more connection in our community, in our families, in our friend groups, and in our own lives. So, so I think where meditation itself comes into this is that it, A, starts to give you a little bit more space, um, space to really be with, with what's there, to, to not be so reactive. One of the teachers said that she's an, an empty nester and that she works a lot during the weekends because when she stops, she kind of just doesn't know what she, who she is, what she's supposed to do. And I said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people out there who identify themselves through their function Right? I am my function, I am what I do, I am the roles that I hold in life. A lot of people identify themselves through their function and how well they perform that function is how they judge themselves and how good they are, how valuable they are, how worthy they are. Yeah, so if I'm a mother, then that's my function that I'm identifying myself with. And if I if my kid is happy and I'm cooking, I'm taking care of everything, and everyone's happy, then I feel that I'm a good mother, so I am good. If the kid is complaining and the house is a mess and I can't keep things together and, and I feel totally overwhelmed, then I'm a bad mother, and that means I am bad because I identify myself with my function. 
Yeah, so I said to her that there's some people that they identify themselves with their function and then they judge themselves as good or bad depending on how well they fulfill that function. And then when they stop doing that thing, they don't know how to identify themselves anymore. And then they just kind of feel lost. And I said to her, you know what would be interesting? Why not go home this weekend, instead of filling up your whole day with work, why not give yourself a little meditation retreat Sit down, feel that feeling of lost, and just breathe. Feel lost, feel empty, feel that kind of existential unsureness, and just breathe. And realize that that feeling's not going to kill you. Realize that that feeling's actually not even anything to be afraid of and ultimately realize that that feeling doesn't even exist. Because everything just is. If you look at the trees, they're just there. They're growing. You look at the sun, it's just shining. The wind is just blowing. If you look at the world around you, nature, it just is. Things are in a state of being. We are human beings. We're in a state of being. But the ego always wants to identify itself and have a different kind of purpose. It's really hard for us just to be to think that that's enough, that I'm enough because I'm being. I'm a being. I'm serving my function just by being. And you cannot be good or bad, you just are. So you can only judge yourself as perfect because you are being. And I said to her, if you can get through that, through that feeling of not knowing who you are, not being able to identify yourself, but really just learn to identify yourself with that state of being, you'll really just be able to drop all that. Because otherwise, you're just constantly running away from that feeling of emptiness, which is like a fear. There's that feeling of emptiness, then there's a fear around that, and then you're just keeping yourself busy constantly out of fear. It's chasing you, and you're running around it all day long to not have to feel it. Yeah? Which is A, exhausting, but B, also it's not really in your integrity because you're, you're trying not to look at the truth. You're trying not to look at a feeling because you think it's too much, that it's too big, that if I really accept this feeling, it's all over. Yeah, and that's the greatest trick. You know, we just watched uh, that, the new It, the clown movie, right? The bad clown movie. Stephen King, It. Yeah. And as with a lot of these kinds of things, you know, maybe like spoiler alert, I don't know, that ultimately it's one of those things that if you're not afraid, it has no power over you. If you're not afraid of it, it has no power over you. And I think it's fitting that the word is it, because it can be anything. It's anything that we're afraid of, anything we're running away from. Anything that seems like it's going to overtake us when we make that decision to push it away and to run away from it, we're giving it power over us. It's suddenly controlling us. And everything we do is to not have to face it. Yeah? But actually, when you sit down and you breathe and you face it, then you see it's not that bad. And actually, it has no power over me. I am only being controlled by my own fear. And this is a really, really, really hard thing 
to actually realize. Yeah, I'm saying it and it sounds nice, but to actually practice that, it's very difficult because nobody wants to face themselves in the deeper levels. Nobody. Yeah. And I can honestly say for myself, the times that I have faced it, it really came out of situations where there was no way out except to really admit and to face myself and to own it. And to really make that decision that said, you know, I really want to be happy in this lifetime and I can be happy in this lifetime, but that means I have to go through all of this shit and I have to go through it. And I know that there's a light at the end of that tunnel. I don't see it yet, but I know there is because I'm simply unhappy right now. So I cannot quit until I am happy. And I took that really as an act of self-love to say I have to keep going until I find happiness. Yeah. And I can say to you that I am happy, that it does work, that there is a way through that stuff. If you keep going, you will find a way through it. Yeah. If you run away from it, it takes power over you. And the act of meditation, as much as I like to talk about meditation as a practice of breathing and relaxing, which is really these positive emotions, the positivity that builds up in your practice of meditation, it really is what brings the mind to stay. There's another side to the practice of meditation, which is actually all of the difficulty, all of the pain, all of the racing mind and fights you had with people 20 years ago that you were thinking about and the worries that you have about all the, the world and the people around you and, and all of the unpleasant racing of the mind that comes up and the pains in your legs and in your back and the room is cold and there's these weird sounds coming from the hallway and there's always just a plethora of difficulties that are available to us in every moment if we choose to give them our attention. And sometimes they really come up in your face. Yeah. You'll sit to meditate and those thoughts, those feelings, the pain, it gets louder and louder and louder and it says, hey, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me. And sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's really trying to tell you something. It's like, hey, you've been ignoring me for too long. Now you're gonna have to listen. But sometimes the pain will be sitting there in front of your face and you'll know on a deep level, there's actually nothing I can do about this pain except just to accept it as a part of life. To really just make peace with it. And that opens up a whole new kind of chamber within the heart, this place of forbearance. This place that allows us to be with discomfort and it, and it allows us to be strong in that space. And that's not to say that you shouldn't try to be happy. It's not to say that you shouldn't speak out if something's not okay, that you shouldn't set your boundaries, right? That if you're sitting and a bee is stinging your leg that you shouldn't try to get that bee off. Like, of course, take care of yourself in a very practical way, take care of yourself. And also realize that suffering is bound up into this existence just as much as beauty is. And as much as we should really allow ourselves to feel that beauty and be filled by that and let it inspire us and touch us, we also have to really acknowledge the suffering and to also feel that and also welcome that in and invite it and to sit with it and not be afraid of it and not let it control us. And when it really comes down to it, pretty much any problem anybody has ever had can be maybe just summed up in the word that something is not the way that you want it to be. 
pretty much every problem that you can imagine just comes down to something is not how you want it to be. I think a Buddhist teacher, he once described suffering as the world not being able to provide for you what you want, which is, I guess, the same thing. Yeah, something not being the way you want it to be. And that's really it. It's always just something's not what we want. Yeah. I want to feel happy, but I don't. I want my body to be healthy, but it's not. I want everyone to love me, but they don't. I want to feel this way, but I don't. I want my mind to be peaceful and relaxed and meditative, but it's not. Yeah. And this is kind of what the Buddha said. He said that all of the karma that we've created, all this movement in our life, this, this spinning of these wheels, it all comes back to this grasping, this, this wanting things to be different, trying to force things to be different, trying to control the world to make it in a way that we are always happy all the time on every level. And it's just so impossible. But we keep trying and trying and trying. We keep spinning the wheels, spinning the wheels, building a life, creating, creating, doing, doing. And then we sit to meditate and we wonder why our mind is so busy. Yeah, you sit down to meditate and you wonder why your mind is spinning out of control constantly. Of course. It's because you've been spinning your wheels all lifetime long trying to get things to be the way you want them to be. And then you sit down to meditate and either you're exhausted and you just fall asleep or you're just watching those thoughts still spinning around, still trying, still trying, still trying to get things to be the way you want them to be. And it's endless. It's an endless cycle. If you haven't figured that out by now, yeah, it's endless. So they say that meditation is the practice of contentment. Yeah, so we practice how to be content. We practice how to really enjoy sitting here, how to feel the peace, the relaxation, and also how to accept the things that we don't necessarily want. But to be content, it's good enough. Yeah, my mind is racing. That's good enough. At least you're sitting down to meditate. I have pain in my leg. Well, it's good enough. At least you have a leg. At least you're alive. At least you're here. That pain is telling you you're still alive. It's fine. But I don't know if I'm doing it right. It's good enough. At least you're sitting here. At least you're just doing something. Yeah, if you can't help it, at least don't hurt it. Yeah, just leave it be. So slowly, slowly, slowly reprogramming our minds to really just be present, to really be here with what's here. And in each moment, we do what we have to do to navigate, but also picking our battles, knowing what you can do something about and what you just have to accept and let through. And the things you can't control, truly letting those things go. And the things you can control, truly putting in your effort to fix them. And that's the real balance. Yeah. What can I actually do and what can't I do? What do I have effect and control over? What do I have to fully be finished with, release. So during our meditation practice today, as we're sitting here and as we do the walking meditation, I invite you all to come to that place where you kind of see for yourself, you know, what do I actually have control over? Yeah, how much of this whole experience am I actually controlling? And how much of it do I just have to surrender to and make peace with? Yeah. And the great teacher, Achan Chai, said, if you let go a little bit, you'll get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll get complete peace. So with that impulse, um, 
think we can do a sitting, a walking, and then a sitting meditation.